Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. You've had a little bit of time to get more energized than when Peter asked this question, so let me ask you, are you glad to be here today? I think they just like me better, Peter. I don't know. <laughs> what a powerful story, right, JJ and Ray? If you are new to BT, you may be wondering, what is this renovation thing you're talking about? What building are you renovating? The building that's being renovated is this one. It's my heart. It's your heart. See, renovation, this initiative that we're in, what it's really about is a renovation of the heart. What, what we've done as a church is uh, earlier this year in, in March, we entered into a two-year season of generosity. Uh, what we believe is that God is doing something in us. And, and hear me, beloved, anytime God does something in you, it's for the purpose of doing something through you. It's not just to terminate in and, our, in and of ourselves so we can get it all, but so that what God gives us, we can give away as well. And the reality is, is that because God has been generous towards us, for God so loved the world, he gave, right? He gave the best. Because God has been generous towards us, that creates gratitude in us, right? But gratitude then is expressed through generosity, and so what we've done is we've entered into a two-year season of generosity, and our number one goal is that everyone who calls BT home would join us on the journey. Maybe you're new to BT, you think, oh, I missed out. You can join us now. You can go to our website and go to renovation or go to btrenovation.church and uh, find information there, stop by the renovation hub. But it's a two-year journey of generosity. And again, our number one goal is uh, that everyone who comes along, that, that calls BT home would come alongside us on the journey. We believe that when that happens, that when everyone who calls BT home joins us, that, that what God's going to do is, is truly something we can't imagine. Uh, what we've had uh, committed and what we expect over a two-year window is just under $11.5 million, praise God. The highest, that would be the highest two-year giving total in the history of our church, but we're praying that we would even exceed that. Amen? And you say, okay, you're talking about money. That's, let's get in, getting sensitive. What are we going to do with that money? Well, our, our goal through renovation is obviously we have to maintain our operating expenses, and that's built into that number. That's the majority of that. But with the extra, with the excess that would come in, we want to maximize our missional giving. And so we'll give more in 24 months than we've ever given in a 24-month history, 24-month uh, period in the history of our church. So we're going to maximize what we do with our missions partners. We uh, have already finished the makeover of the McAllen Student Building. It's done, our student ministry and young adult ministry is growing each and every week uh, with more young people over there. We will, in the next few weeks, Lord willing, complete the renovation on the pavilion. So we'll have a great outdoor rec space. We have those two buildings for middle school, high school, and young adults uh, here in McAllen because we're making over the McAllen campus. Uh, we have kicked off Kingsville. The building is done. Amen. That renovation has complete. It has completed. We're just now finishing up landscaping. You say, why are you spending money on landscaping? Because we want people to take notice that we're there. That building's been there for 100 years, and it's become background noise. And so we're putting some money in the exterior, so that'll get done in the next few weeks. We have our campus pastor there, Mike Heckerl, and so we're kicking things off there. We are still looking for the uh, long-term building in Edinburgh, and we'll use the renovation resources to secure that. We're reducing the debt on the Sherryland location. By God's grace, we're able to transition that from a lease to a purchase for the Sherryland campus, and we'll continue to advance the ministry in Alice. So that's what we're doing, right, just for all the details. 
But, but what it's about, it's about a recognition of who God is and what he's done for us. And what I loved about J.J. and Ray's story is so many times the church, and, and we should do this, but when it's a giving season or a giving initiative, we, we, we share videos and stories where somebody says, you know, I felt God call us to give, and so we gave, and then we got a raise, right? Or we gave, and then we won the lottery, which just reminder, if you win the lottery, it's 50% tithe. But anyways, um, I mean, if the government's getting 30, God should get half, right? So, but those, those stories come up a lot. And, and, and you know why they come up? Because God is faithful, amen? Uh, the, the, the clearest passage on tithing in Malachi chapter 3, God says, test me in this way and see if I will not open the windows, not window, windows of heaven. And so there are tons of story, stories of people who had not trusted God with their resources. And let me just say this, this is not a sermon on, on tithing and giving. But if you don't trust God with your resources, you don't trust God. And there are, there are tons of stories of people who said, you know what, we started to trust God, we began to tithe, we began to give the offering, and then when that happened, these windows opened, and many times with that came financial blessing. But what I love about J.J. and Ray's story, and that may be what happens for them, but they made a commitment to give on a number, and then after making that commitment, their monthly income got cut in half. Because this is what tithing is all about. It's not about tithing so God will give you more. It's about giving because God is enough. And the windows of heaven, please hear me, the windows of heaven are not limited to dollars and cents, but peace that passes understanding. And so I'm thankful for stories like J.J. and Ray's uh, and thankful for the, for, for the body that is BT Church. We love to celebrate what God is doing. And so listen to this. Since we launched renovation in March, we've had 489 new givers here at BT. 489 new people saying, I want to trust God in this way. Uh, also, check this out. J- just from la- last week to this week, in, in a seven-day period, we had 29 people give their life to Christ and 10 people get baptized in one week. This past week, we had our Harvest Bash in Kingsville. That's our, uh, our, our first significant outreach event. Uh, Wednesday night, we opened the campus, we had some inflatables, we gave away some candy. We had over 500 people come on campus in Kingsville. And our campus pastor gave tours of the facility because there were people that had never been there and wanted to know what the building looked like on the inside. I pray they're there this morning. So, so that's just the past week, but this year, 415 people have gone from death to life as they've called upon the name of Jesus. 265 people have been obedient with believers' baptism as they have entered the baptistries of our campuses and prisons where we've done uh, outreach events. And so we, what we are experiencing, beloved, is nothing short of revival. It is not a misuse of the word to say what God is choosing to do by his grace is truly the work of revival. So would you join me for all of that and more, just thanking God for what he's doing in the life of our church. All that to say, let me one more time welcome everyone, welcome our guests, so glad you're with us if you're a VIP, welcome our online family, welcome our ASL family as well, and uh, welcome those that are listening uh, via translation. We have a first-time translator today, and I told him I talk fast, so... Hopefully you're keeping up, Arnold. And uh, so just so glad that you're here, Uh, so thankful that you are with us. And what we're going to do today is we're going to continue on in our series called Asking for a Friend. This is the fifth week. We'll wrap it up next week, so you want to be here for that. You just need to put on your calendar. Next week, we're wrapping up Asking for a Friend. You don't want to miss it. And then the next week is homecoming. You definitely don't want to miss that as you show up in your high school gear, right? 
Uh, I told the first service, I said, uh, dress like it's the best time of your life. I said, wait, wait, no, high school was not the best time of my life. Don't dress like you're in high school. But we're going to have a lot of fun that day. Bring somebody or 12 somebodies with you as we celebrate. But today we're in week five of Asking for a Friend, and this series has been determined by you. We had over 100 submissions. Let me just say this, been saying a lot. We're not going to answer every question on Sunday morning. Starting this week and next week, if you're on our email list, you'll start seeing some questions get answered via email. Some videos will begin to be posted, and we're going to hold on to some and turn them into sermons later on down the road. But today, I'm going to talk about the question that was asked the most in these 100-plus questions that were submitted. There, there, there were several questions that were repeated. Those are primarily the ones that we've gone after. But the question that was asked the most in one way or the other was this. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I'm going to heaven? How do I know that I'm saved? I, I got saved, but, but then I, I gave my life to Christ, but, but then I went through a divorce. Uh, my old church says that means I'm going to hell now. Hey, I, I got saved, but, but then I, I went through this season of really bad stuff. How do I know that I still have Jesus in my heart. Now, you may be thinking to yourself a couple things. You may think to yourself, I'm here all the time, Chris. I know I'm saved. Praise God. That's not arrogance. That's confidence. John would write in 1 John 5, I have said these things so that you may know, right, the assurance of salvation. And so you may be thinking, like, I grew up in church, got saved when I was a kid. I've been in church for decades. I'm glad you're doing this, but it's not for me. First off, there's no such thing as a sermon, not for you or not for me. Right, the, the truth of God's word is always for us. And so some may be thinking, oh, I'm going to go ahead and get the phone out. Don't get the phone out, all right? This is just a random side note. This, this is, these are the random things I think that I shouldn't say out loud, but we're all family. So sometimes I think, you know, I, I'm going to have like a basket like they do at school. And when everybody, you're just going to put your phone in the basket and you get it when you leave. Um, what did I just say? That, I just said that I see you when you're on your phone and I'm preaching, so... All right, you say, I'm taking notes. Eh, that's true. I guess I can't argue with that. All right. All that to say, so, some of us may think, hey, like, I feel very secure in my salvation. Well, this may be something God wants to give you to share with someone else. He may want to give this just to remind you of how good he is, that his salvation is effectual and cannot be taken away. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Maybe this, maybe this is for me. I have been having these doubts. I have been having these questions. I want you to know my hope today is that through the teaching of God's word, you, you would be given that confirmation that what God has began, he will complete. It's not dependent upon you. We receive the gift, but Jesus has accomplished the gift that we know as eternal security. I'm going to use that phrase a lot today, so let me just break that down. I'm going to say eternal security over and over and over. What does that mean? It means that you are secure for eternity, right? Eternal security means that you are secure for eternity. I'm going to give you a longer definition and a little bit, uh, a little bit down the road here in the sermon, but initially, just know when we say eternal security, we mean that we are secured, we have confidence that what has happened in our hearts because of Jesus is something that lasts for eternity. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at John chapter 17, if you have a copy of God's Word. We're going to look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is called the High Priestly Prayer. 
This prayer is taking place in the Passion Week of Jesus' life. What's the Passion Week? That's the week that would culminate with his crucifixion on the cross. In fact, if you follow the events in order that John presents them, Jesus is praying this prayer 24 hours before he would be crucified. He has left his friend's house, the upper room. He had left this gathering of friends, and he and his disciples are traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane. You say, that sounds familiar. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus would pray, not this prayer, but another prayer. And it would be so intense that the Bible says he sweat like drops of blood. He would be betrayed in the garden. He would be arrested, beaten, and then prepared for crucifixion. So he, he is praying this high priestly prayer, traveling between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And what he's doing is he's praying for unity for believers. He addresses the unity that Jesus, God the Son, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God, called the Trinity. He's praying that the unity that he has with the Heavenly Father, his people would have both with the Father but with, the, with each other. The, the prayer, what happens in this prayer is, is he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples in the moment, and he ends up closing by praying for all believers of all time. In that prayer, he, he talks about things that the Father has given the Son. He talks about things that the Son has given to believers. And then he talks about things he's asking the Father to give still yet. And so we're going to look at this passage and at Jesus' prayer. And we're, what we're going to do, we're going to do, real simple assignment. We're going to walk through 26 verses. We're going to hit the pause button. We're, we're just going to unpack, it'll be a little different. We're just going to unpack the text. And then after all that, I'm going to give you two things to think about, okay? So the high priestly prayer, some of you may be familiar with what we call the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew. The truth is, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, if you're not familiar, it's, the, you know, our Father, a lot of us learned it this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy king. You know, you, if you played sports in high school, it was what the coach said right after he cussed you out, right? Uh, he's like, all right, let's pray. Um, so, but, but we call that the Lord's Prayer, but really that's the model prayer. Jesus never said, pray this. I'm not saying it's bad if you do, but we're not commanded in Scripture to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. We are commanded to pray like it, right? Recognize who God is. Your name be regarded as holy. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come before my desires. Your will be done before my will, right? And then moving into, right, give us this day. Continue to meet our needs. Help me be more like Jesus as I forgive as you've forgiven me. It's a model for what prayer should look like. But John 17 is literally the Lord's Prayer. It is Jesus' prayer for the followers that he had in the moment and for all believers that would be given to him by grace through faith. And so let's take a look here at the text and see what it says. Starting in verse 1 of John 17, it says, Jesus spoke these things looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so the son may glorify you. Let's hit the pause button. If you're going to underline something, underline that phrase, the hour has come. If you study the gospel of John particularly, you will see that phrase a few times. What does it mean that Jesus in the high priestly prayer says, Father, the hour has come? Well, if you were to go back to John chapter 2, in John chapter 2, Jesus performs his very first miracle. It is the start of his public ministry. Some of you know what he did. He went to a party and he turned water into wine. All the Baptists under the breath said grape juice. Uh, 
And the Bible said wine, but we'll leave it at that. So, so Jesus, and it seems like his family is invited to this wedding. I don't, personally, I don't know that his disciples were. He had just called his disciples. He just took them with him. That's how Jesus rolls. Uh, i got to be careful because I'm going to end up preaching John 2 instead of John 17. But, but Jesus shows up at the wedding, and, and the guests are having a good time, and, and they run out of wine, right? And, and this would have been a huge faux pas for the family because they, 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 they didn't prepare for the full night's events. And so wine is running out, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to him and says, Jesus, they're running out of wine. You need to fix it, right? And, and, and Jesus, more or less, I'm paraphrasing, he's like, hey, what's that got to do with me, woman, right? But I just love that this exchange gets kind of, it's kind of polarizing because Mary says, you know, this is happening. And then in the text it says, woman, you know, my, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me or what does this concern me? And it seems kind of harsh. I love that exchange, though. It's just like side note. This is, this is why my sermons go long because of this right here. This, Mary goes up to Jesus, her son, right, who, who, who was born. She was a virgin when she got pregnant. She, she has an idea who he is. She, she goes up to him and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. I need you to fix it. And he says, what's that got to do with me? What does Mary do? Hey, y'all, do what he says. You ever have a mama like that, right? Hey, son, I need you to do this. What's that got to do with me? Whatever. Y'all, he's going to do what I said, so you just go help him do what I said, right? I love that Mary's just still a mom, right? But why does she go to Jesus? Like, does he have a Sam's membership, Costco? Can he get discount wine? I mean, why did, why did she go to Jesus? Because she knew. She didn't know what she knew, but she knew there was something. More than anyone, even the disciples he just called, she knew more than anyone at the party because she had carried the Messiah for nine months as a virgin. She knew there was something. She didn't know what he was going to do. But she knew he could do something. But all that said, in that exchange, when Mary goes to Jesus, he says, my hour, that phrase, has not yet come. And this is just what I believe. I believe that while Jesus is fully God, sometimes we forget that he's also fully man. And I think Jesus is basically saying, in that moment, my hour has not yet come. Jesus knew the moment he did that miracle, that train was going to leave the station. And he would officially be on the road to Calvary. That, that that would begin the public ministry. And in just a few weeks, we'll begin to celebrate Advent at BT, the Christmas season, the birth of Christ. But don't forget this, Jesus was born to die. And I think Jesus in this humanity is saying, my hour has not yet come. And what he knew is that the moment he turned that water into wine, I like what the old preacher Gardner Taylor says. He says that the conscious water heard the voice of its maker and blushed. <laughs> That's good. He said he knew the, what, what I believe, Jesus, the moment he does it, there's no turning back. All that to say, John 2, my hour is not yet, and here, what is he saying? A day before his crucifixion, Father, the hour has come. He's saying what Paul would say, I have run the race. I have fought the good fight. Verse 2, since you gave him authority, he's speaking of the glory, the glory that the Son gives to the Father and the Father gives to the Son. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he, being Jesus the Son, may give eternal life. How can I know that I'm saved? He gives and doesn't take back. 
to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. He didn't say that they may go to church, while that's important, that they would be baptized, while that's important, while they would be confirmed, while they would give to renovation, that they would know you and Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, praying for himself, what did he just say? He's basically saying, God, I am ready to go back home. Because Jesus, eternally preexistent, fancy word, he's always been there because he's God. He's saying, I'm going to finish the work, and I am ready. I am ready to go back to the glory that was mine before I put on this earth suit. Verse 6, he begins to pray for his disciples. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you, They have believed you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Like, that's kind of harsh. Why isn't Jesus praying for the world? He's going to get there. Right now, he's praying for these followers. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I'm glorified in, is mine and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. He's saying, Father, let them be together and unified as you and I are. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Notice he has said, Father, protect them. If you find yourself questioning, you know you've had that moment where you've said yes to Jesus, but you've had some ups and downs, and you find yourself questioning whether or not you've been kept in the faith. Let me just ask you a non-rhetorical question. If, if Jesus is asking God the Father to protect you, do you think that is an effectual prayer? Yes. Jesus saying, protecting for his disciples, but that applies to us. Verse 13, now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may know my, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus just said they are in the world, right? He's leaving. They are in it, but they're not of it. That's why we're not called to be a holy huddle, right? We're not called to retreat and just, you know, form our own little commune where we never get out there with those sinful people. That's why I get it. Let me just say this. this. This Tuesday, October 31st, we'll have Harvest Bash for our Valley campuses. And we're hoping to have thousands of people come and bring their kids and have a, a good, fun, safe night. And there are some families in our church that don't agree with that. That's okay. The beauty of the family of God is we have some liberties in Jesus to not agree on everything and still agree in Jesus, okay? One of, the greatest, one of the greatest challenges the church faces today is we're dividing over non-divided things. That's what's happening. And so let me, let me be clear. If, if you as an individual or family think, hey, we shouldn't do that, that's fine. You, you have the freedom. And if you say, well, why are we doing that? We're not supposed to be of the world. I think that's of the world. What we're trying to be is in the world and not of it. We are, we are saying that night families are going to go out either way. 
And if you stay home, it's the only time they come knocking on your door. <laughs> They're going to go out either way. And in fact, those streets get kind of crazy sometimes. So we're saying literally safety-wise, hey, let's just bring them here. Let's cover the bill. Let's give them some candy. Let's, let, let, let's let them know we love them, right? So we're trying to be in the place that God has called us to be. We're just trying not to be of it. And this is just my own, this is, you, again, disagree, it's totally okay. We can have a conversation about it. Theologically, I don't believe anywhere in the Bible that, that the devil was given a day to call his own. So he only gets it if we give it to him. And so we've said we're going to reclaim that day, right? Anyways, back to the text. Here we go. So they, they, are, they are not of the world. The world hated them, he says. Verse 15, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them more like me. Sanctification is a fancy word. It's the process that begins the moment we give our life to Jesus. We are active in sanctification. We actively seek Jesus. The beauty is, so is God. He's actively in the process of making us look like Jesus. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they may also be sanctified by the truth. Now, verse 20, Jesus prays for all believers. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. You catch that? Jesus says, I'm in them and you're in me and let's all, what's he building? He's building this construct of an image that we are woven together so tightly. You're just like, we're supposed to be talking about eternal security. The picture that Jesus is painting in the high priestly prayer is we are so tightly woven together with the spirit of God that nothing can undo what has been put together. I'm in them and you are in me, he's saying. May they be in us. I have given them the glory you have given me, verse 22, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved me and, and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Woo. It's a lot. So how does the high priestly prayer of Jesus give us the confidence and assurance to know that I'm going to heaven. Give us the confidence to know that I have been saved. Give us the confidence to know that we can have eternal security. So eternal security, right? This security for eternity. A few things about eternal security. Let me give you a longer definition real quick. What is eternal security? How would I define it? I would define it this way. Eternal security is a promise of God. Amen. It's a promise of God. Now don't miss the second part. For the glory of God. You know one of the biggest struggles that believers have today when it comes to eternal security is they make it about themselves. That's the problem. It, be, it becomes unintentionally or maybe intentionally, but it becomes a selfish pursuit, right? 
Self becomes, I just want to make sure I'm not going to hell, right? I want to make sure that, that, that God didn't give up on me. I just want to, eternal security is a promise of God, first and foremost, for the glory of God. That, that his saving power is effectual, that nothing undoes what he completes. So eternal security is a promise of God for the glory of God that blesses the people of God forever. Eternal security is a promise of God for the glory of God that absolutely does bless the people of God. And that blessing is forever. So many times when we have the questions that plague our faith, they are driven out of fear. And what we need to be reminded of is that what Jesus has accomplished cannot be undone. In John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, says that those sheep that belong to him, that no one can snatch them out of his hand. You say, well, I, I'm not saying that someone made me unsaved, Chris. I'm just not sure if my sin can make me unsaved. Guess what, beloved good news? You're part of the no one. When Jesus says that those that belong to him, no one can snatch them out of his hand, you're part of the no one. You can't snatch yourself out of his hand. John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. If anyone is in me, I remain in him. Listen, you may be a Christian and you may be tired of Jesus. Too bad he ain't tired of you. You, you, may, want, you may want him to move out, but he's not going anywhere. Now, John 15 does tell us that those that are in Christ and that Christ is in, there will be some fruit bearing. And there are some people that very much claim to know Jesus, but the evidence of their life says otherwise. And so it is this promise of God that, that gives him glory because it displays his power, right? You say, some of you, you, you don't know if you've said yes to Jesus, and your biggest hang-up is you got so much baggage, you think you've got to fix it. We say it all the time. You may be a great sinner. I'm a good one, I know. Paul said he was the best. The apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. But however good you are at sinning, Jesus will always be better at saving. And so you bring your baggage to him. Now, what's happened in the church, unfortunately, is we've got a little bit twisted in an, in an attempt to be politically correct. Jesus is not afraid for you to bring your baggage to him, but he does not want you to keep it. He wants you to leave it and to grow in fullness and maturity in him. And maybe you have said yes to Jesus, and you went through a, a difficult time. You, you went through something that you didn't you know, desire. Maybe, maybe you, you, you had a season where you struggled with some substances, pornography, or, or things that shouldn't be in a believer's life. And you, and you think to yourself, well, because of that season, I don't know that I, don't know that I, I, I stuck. I don't know that, that I said the prayer quite good enough. I, I don't know if Jesus put up with that, and I'm not sure that I'm still saved. The axiom rings true. You may be a good sinner, even as a believer, but Jesus is still a better Savior. And praying for the believers of the whole world, he is saying, let us be one, because what I'm about to accomplish, again, 24 hours from the cross, what I'm about to accomplish is strong enough to keep us together. It, it is the promise of God for the glory of God that blesses the people of God. And what's happened today in the church is that this word called, called doubt has created this dichotomy that I don't think should exist. See, there are two extremes when doubt comes up. One of those is condemnation. You start telling someone that you're doubting your faith. Oh, how could you doubt your faith? You're the worst person. You know. Nowhere in the Bible is condemnation the answer. When, when, when Thomas himself 
sees the resurrected Lord, he says, he says, I got it. Well, he, he heard about it, actually. He says, I'm not going to believe it till I touch him. And what did Jesus do? He let him touch him, right? And so sometimes in the church, doubt gets condemned. But here's a new phenomenon. Sometimes doubt gets celebrated. And that's not in the Bible either. If you're here today, maybe you're a new believer, a young believer, or you've been with, walking with Jesus for a while, but you've got some doubts, and you're, you're kind of wondering what to do with those, hear me clearly, that's not where you're meant to be. Again, 1 John 5 doesn't say, I have said these things so that you may know. He doesn't say that so we could be kind of sure we're okay with God. Well, I, I feel okay, but, you know, Cowboys kick off at noon, so I stayed home today, talking to you online, uh, and, you know... <laughs> I felt pretty good, but then I had, this, I had this bad season. But sometimes what's happening in the church is, is now doubt's getting celebrated, and we've come up with like deconstruction of faith, and, and we don't have to be scared of these words, but we shouldn't celebrate them either. The death and resurrection of Jesus has been provided not so we could go through doubt like a, go through life like a yo-yo, but we could go with confidence. Now I get it. 25 years ago, I gave my life to Christ, and early on, I had doubts all the time. You know why? Because I grew up in church. I went to church every Sunday morning. We went on Sunday night. We went on Wednesday night. I mean, it was not an option. I was there, and I thought I was good. And then I get to college, and then one night, I come to this stark realization that I actually don't know Jesus. And overwhelmed with emotion, I give my life to Christ. And, th and then, you know, a few months pass and I do some things I shouldn't do. Or the next year I find myself not reading the Bible like I should. And suddenly I start thinking to myself as a sophomore in college, I'm like, am I saved? I mean, because I thought I was saved for 19 years. How do I know this one took? And this is, this is what I'll tell you, beloved. Today, and this isn't a statement of arrogance. Hear me, it's a statement of confidence. I, I do not doubt my salvation. I got lots of problems. Doubting salvation in one. And it's not because I became a pastor and I went to seminary and I read the Bible. No. That's fine, but do you know why of all the challenges I still have in my faith, doubting my salvation isn't one? You know why? Because I realized over time the only way to get that taken care of was to get a bigger view of Jesus. I'm just telling you, as my view of Jesus went up, my struggle with doubt went down. It just, it, it just happened. And so many times the struggle we have with doubt, the problem is we think we got to be big and strong. And it's Jesus who goes and prays to the Father, right? I, 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 I have the power to save, he says in John 17, verse 2. I have the power to save. I will keep them together. John 10, no one can snatch them out of my hands. John 15, they remain in me and I remain in them. So, beloved, what do we do when we question, right? What do we do when, when, when we have this, this struggle? And here's the deal. Some of you may be thinking, I don't know why we're talking about this. I remembered the series before this, we talked about it. We did. The series before asking for a friend, we spent four weeks in Ephesians chapter 1. The series was called ID, and it was all about spiritual identity. But yet, this was still the most asked question. So, so what do we do when, when these questions, how can I know I'm going to heaven, right? How, 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 how can I know that I'm saved? What do we do in light of what Jesus prays in John 17 for the unity of the body of Christ, kept not by our doing, but his doing? Two practices, two truths, two realities, whatever you want to call it, two things, and I'm done. 
How can I know I'm going to heaven? Here's two things I'd encourage you with. First, shift your focus from fear of failure to faithfully following. Shift your focus from fear of failure to faithfully following. Again, I said earlier, so many times our doubts, if we are really honest and it it makes us uncomfortable, our doubts are born out of selfishness. We, we, we have a fear of failure. We have a fear that God's going to take something from us. And, and, and as a result, we're no longer following him. Beloved, today, if you find yourself with questions or you know someone who is questioning, the answer is to follow Jesus more closely. It's to remain in him, John 15, right? It's to be close to the good shepherd. It is to be found in Christ. Verse 17 of the high priestly prayer, Jesus said these words, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. That's John 17, 17. Sanctify them, this this process that we are actively involved in of looking like Jesus. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. Here is what I would share with you. Sanctification solidifies security. Most of the time when we let our, our hearts be troubled, When doubt overwhelms us, if we're honest, we are not faithfully following. Life got busy. Stuff happened. Church church became more optional. Listen to me. Data surveys are showing that more and more people are struggling with the sincerity of their faith. There are more people in church wondering if they are indeed saved we also have an all-time low in regular church attendance. They are not disconnected. And so life gets busy. You know, it's easier to not go. Uh, I'm not reading the Bible as much. I don't have much of a prayer life. I'm not using my gifts and talents to serve in the kingdom. And then suddenly faith is just this side compartment of our life. And then we wonder and we question and we doubt, how do I know? Because life is happening and it's all messed up. And I, I lost a loved one and, and all this trouble is around us. And we want to know that we know. And the question or, 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 or the answer I would give you is, is shift your focus from this fear of failure, of losing that which you didn't gain on your own and shift it back to faithfully following Jesus. And then secondly, last point, only two today. And I think this, this next one is, is really the crux of so many, so many people's doubt. Shift your focus from the place of heaven to the person of Jesus. Shift your focus from the place of heaven to the person of Jesus. Because here's the deal, and if, if, you, if you pose the question specifically this way, don't be offended, but how can I know I'm going to heaven is actually the wrong question. It's not about heaven. It's about Jesus. And I'll really mess with your brains because if I went to Revelation and preached there, I would tell you that my belief based on Revelation is we're going to live on the restored earth, not in heaven anyways. (laughs) You're like, what? Don't worry about it. Just strike that one from the record. (laughs) We'll get back to that. But listen to me. This is what we've done. We've turned it into this this. Now listen, the place of heaven, praise God, if we take our last breath before Jesus comes back, I do believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But, but I'm talking to the churchies for a minute. You're like, the who? The people that have been in church their whole life. We, we have bought this honey-dipped lie. We have bought into this, this concept that, that the gospel is a transaction. 
In fact, again, I, I use this language, so, but we call it, hey, I need to work on my gospel presentation. The gospel's not a presentation, it's transformation. Yes, to, to the, the prayer that we offer every week, we call it the sinner's prayer, that is a way for someone to confess with their mouth what they believe in their heart, but it's not simply about saying a prayer. That's why I say every week, it's not a magic formula. And somewhere along the way, we as churchies have adopted this mentality. I just got to go, oh, here, here's Lisa. She's my target. She's, my, that, 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 she's the problem. And so, you know, I'm, I, my agenda, I need Lisa to say the prayer. Okay, she said it. Hey, hope your life is good. See you in heaven. And the gospel becomes this momentary presentation instead of an investment. Instead of what Jesus prays in John 17, that we would be one. And here's what's happened. The church, we have sold people an idea that it's all about a place. If Jesus isn't in heaven, do we want to go? The best part of knowing Jesus is not heaven. It's always knowing Jesus. That's why I'm not waiting to take my last breath to know what I got. That's why I can say I know that I'm saved. Because I'm not waiting for, I'm not waiting. Hear me, I'm not waiting to close my eyes to wonder how it's going to turn out. But because Jesus gave his life on the cross as a ransom for many. Because he walked out of the tomb. You know when they put the stone in front of the tomb? You know why they did that? Not to keep people in, but to keep people from getting in. They didn't have much of a problem with dead people walking out. They put the stone to keep grave robbers, right? And they were, they were concerned with Jesus because they didn't want anybody stealing his body and making it sound like he was actually who he said he was. And so my own theological opinion, I think this stone was larger than most. I think the ceiling of this tomb was like no other. And when it was set in place, it wasn't moving, but they didn't count on an inside man. <laughs> the stone didn't get rolled from the outside, it got rolled from the inside. And when he walks out, he says, to all who call upon my name, I give the gift of salvation. And I don't take the gift back. And the gift is not a place, it is the person of Jesus. And if you found yourself in doubt, my question is, have you shifted your focus yet? Because when the, when the focus is all about a place, it's easy to stop faithfully following. When the focus is a place, it's easy to prioritize my desires over his. But when the focus is the person of Jesus, I know everything I need is simply more of him. Everything that I need is found in him. It's a story of a Bible conference that was hosted. And the organizer of the event, he invited several speakers, and then he invited two speakers specifically to speak on the 23rd Psalm, right? Well known. One of these two individuals was a man who had a PhD in Hebrew thought. He was also, not, not only was he a scholar, but he was a gifted orator. Was, he, just, he just talked good. He just, like, when you just wanted to hear more of him, right? And so this, this Ph.D. in Hebrew thought, this gifted orator, he gets up, and, and you know, the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lets me lie down beside green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You 
prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? So, so this orator just does better. Oh, that was pretty good, though. But he, he, just, he just, I mean, waxes eloquently, and then he doesn't just talk good, but he, he talks about the Hebrew poetry, and he's breaking down nouns and verbs, and people are just in awe. He gets done. It's like a standing ovation. He sits down, and then the second person was a bivocational pastor who'd been in ministry for 50 years. Nearly 80 years old, never served at a church large enough that they could pay him. So he always preached and did something else. No high school diploma, no seminary degree. He feebly walked up to the platform with strained breath. He says, the Lord is my shepherd and I have what I need. Sometimes my back still hurts, but he still lets me lie down in green pastures. And he just walks through the psalm, about five minutes. When he got done, no, there was no thunderous applause. Th- there was no thunderous applause because the crowd was silent and weeping. And as he hobbled back to his seat, he sat down. The gifted orator, PhD in Hebrew thought, leans over to the conference organizer and says, I don't get it. I mean, yeah, they, they clapped when I was done. But they're speechless. He doesn't even talk well. He didn't expound anything. What, what am I missing? And the conference organizer says, don't, don't worry. You both did what I brought you here to do. He said, what, what, what became clear is you know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. Sometimes our hearts get filled with doubt because we are so caught up in knowing the psalm. What do I need to know? It's not what you need to know, it's who. And if you've given your life to Christ and you find doubt, you don't need condemnation. That's not the answer. You also don't need celebration. What you need is more of Jesus. You need to evaluate your following. Maybe that's going to be a step like being obedient in baptism. That's following. Maybe that's getting, getting serious about generosity and trusting God with your resources. That's following. Maybe that's saying this week I'm going to get up and spend some time in the scripture. That's following. That's, that's showing up this Wednesday for our, our first of the month prayer service. All right? I wasn't going to say this, but since I'm preaching, I will. You know, We're going to have thousands of people come on campus Tuesday night for Harvest Bash. And we'll probably have 100 in this room for prayer. Faithful following, faithful following draws us to the shepherd. So if you know that you know and you just got some doubts, then lean in close to the shepherd. Maybe baptism, it may be generosity, it it may be getting in the scriptures more, getting in prayer, serving. But maybe for someone today, the answer is not what you need to do more of, but who you need to know. Maybe your heart is filled with doubt, and the reason why it's filled with doubt is because you don't have Jesus in the place of that doubt. Something's going to fill your heart, right? 
And for a long time, I, I thought my religious activity was the answer. Thank God he opened my eyes so that, that it was relational identity all along that I needed. And maybe today that's you. You got some church in your background, you're baptized as an adult, sprinkled as a baby, you got confirmed, you've, you've given money to renovation. Great. But have you said yes to Jesus? Because everything else, it's important. Like, don't get it twisted. Knowing the psalm is important. <laughs> but everything else is knowing the psalm. But to believe in your heart and confess through the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, that's to know the shepherd. And so believers, let's live our lives in a way that demonstrates we know the shepherd. And those in this room and online that you're not sure, how about today you get that taken care of? What if today you go from simply knowing about Jesus to knowing him? I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And today, if you would say to me, Chris, I don't know that I have made that decision. I don't know that I've given my life to Jesus. Then my invitation to you is to simply pray this prayer with me. As I've said, it is not a magic formula. There's no such thing. Please hear me. Simply reciting words that the pastor says on Sunday is not the answer. But knowing that there is something you need that you can't provide for yourself and believing that something is Jesus, that is the answer. And so that's where you are. I invite you to say this prayer, not as a magic formula, but as a confession of salvation. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Today, if you want to give your life to Jesus, simply pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm far from you. And I'm lost without you. But I believe that you made a way for me to be made whole. I believe you sent your son, Jesus. I believe he left heaven and came to earth. I believe he lived without sin. I believe he died on the cross and paid for sin. And I believe three days later, he rose again and defeated sin and death. And so Jesus, I give my life to you and I receive your gift of salvation. Thank you for loving me first. It's in your name that I pray.